You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Martin Luther's Five Solas, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. Glad you're here this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. This is Colossians, chapter 3. For those of you who like to read the Bible on your phones, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app. And if you log in there and you go to the menu, you can find the live events and you can find us in there as well. And you see everything that's on the screen a little bit more. It's a great way to interact and, and share your notes and to share the things that we're studying here this morning. Well, this morning, we are concluding a series, kind of a short mini-series that we've been doing for the past several weeks in commemoration of the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation, by the way, was an international movement of returning to the Bible and putting the Word of God in the hands of the people. And what happened during that time is that as people read the Word of God, as they read the Bible, they rediscovered the gospel, and their lives and all of history was changed as a result. And that's something we very much believe here at Whitefields for you too. The same is true today. If you will come to the Bible and you will discover in it the good news of Jesus Christ, your life will be changed forever as well. And so for the anniversary of the Reformation, we've taken five weeks out of our, our previous study, which we're going to pick up again next week. We've been studying through the letter to the Hebrews, verse by verse. We're going to start that again next Sunday. But we've taken just a five-week break from that, and we're looking each week at one of the five core biblical teachings which was at the heart of the Reformation. This week, uh, we will be looking at the last one of these five, which is soli deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. And we're going to look at what that means and what it means for our lives practically. I lost my voice, as you might be able to tell, but we're going to get through this. That's why we got a microphone turned up loud. So would you please read with me? Our text comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 16 through 17, then 22 through 24. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, Work at it heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do pray, Lord, that as we study these things, Lord, that you would get all the glory this morning, Lord, that you would turn our hearts towards you, and Lord, that you turn our lives towards you as we see your glory, as we see your goodness on display. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you would speak to us, that you would teach us by your word and by your spirit, and that we would have receptive hearts, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. The average American will spend 35% of their life at work. 35% of your life you'll probably spend at work. And if you consider that you spend another 30% of your life sleeping and another 7% of your life eating, well, then that leaves you with only 28% of your life to do anything else that you might want to do. And if you calculate into that the fact that you have to clean your house and you have to drive to work, 
then you've really only got about 15% of your total life left for leisure and, and free time activities. And what that means is that the average person spends the great majority of their life working, and then the, all of the other things they do are kind of getting ready for work and recovering from work so that you can get up in the morning and go to work again. So if you add to that also the time when you're not at work that you spend thinking about your work when you're not there, well then the number's even higher. And here's the thing, if we're all gonna die someday, which it seems like we probably will, then, then what's the point of all this work? What is the point of spending our entire lives working? Is work then just a necessary evil, something that we have to do, even though we wouldn't if we didn't have to? Would it be better not to work if you didn't have to? These are important questions that we ask ourselves. There was a young man many years ago who wrestled with these same questions. His father had come from a, a fairly poor family, but he had done well for himself in business. And his dad's dream was that his son would grow up and that he would be able to send his son off to college so that he could get a degree, so he could have a comfortable life and not have to work and labor as hard as he had to make a living and get somewhere in life. And so the young man went off to school. He went off to university. Dad paid for it, and he graduated with honors. And then after that, he went on to graduate school. He went on to law school, and he got his master's, and uh, he was becoming a lawyer. And everything was going according to the father's plan. His son graduated from law school, and then, though, at his graduation ceremony, the son broke some news to him that he hadn't expected. The son had made a decision. Instead of becoming a lawyer, he was going to become a priest. Instead of becoming a lawyer, he was going to enter a monastery and become a monk, and through that, become a priest. And he would dedicate his life to serving God, and he would take a vow of celibacy and a vow of poverty. And the father was distraught when he heard this. It just destroyed him. He had just spent a fortune sending his son to college and then to law school. And so at the graduation dinner for his son, the father was asked to stand up and make a speech. And the father took the opportunity at that speech to voice his displeasure with his son's decision. And you can imagine how awkward that must have been for everybody there, but especially for the son. And during that speech, the father said this, you know, if my son was such a Christian, then he would know that the Bible says that children are supposed to honor their parents, but apparently he doesn't care about the, the word of God as much as he says he does because he's dishonoring me right now by choosing to become a priest. And he asked the question, why can't you serve God as a lawyer? Why can't you do that? Why do you gotta go and become a priest? You see, because becoming a priest would mean a life of poverty. It would mean never getting married, never having children, not carrying on the family name, never giving his parents a grandchild. And the son, though, he, he swallowed hard and he went on and he became a priest. In fact, he became one of the most famous priests in all of history. Ironically, though, the reason that he became famous is because he taught later on that you don't have to become a priest in order to serve God. He actually got married and he actually had children and provided grandchildren for his, for his parents. And of course, all of those things were completely against the rules of, of what the church said and taught. But by doing those things, he changed history. And that man's name was Martin Luther. The reason he gave up that career as a lawyer in order to become a monk was because he had bought in unquestioningly to the common notion of that day. And, and he hadn't thought about it. The one that he later came to reject, and that was this, that there are two spheres of life, the sacred and the secular. Two spheres, sacred and secular. The sacred encompasses those things which are overtly Christian. 
and the secular refers to those things which are done in the world. So for example, we still use this terminology today. You hear people talk about Christian music versus secular music, or you hear people talk about having a secular job versus having a ministry job, meaning that they work in a church or they work for some kind of Christian organization. The idea that there are two spheres of life, the sacred and the secular, or you might call them the spiritual and the temporal, this thinking divides everything into two categories. It says there's spiritual work and there's secular work. There's spiritual art and there's secular art. There's spiritual music and there's secular music. There are spiritual books and there are secular books. And it tries to draw a hard line between the two and put everything into one of those two categories. And this is the reason why Martin Luther left his so-called secular career to enter a monastery and become a monk and a priest. Because he believed that the only way to really serve God and to do God's work was to do it in the walls of the church. He had unquestioningly accepted the idea that spiritual work was of greater significance and of greater value than so-called worldly work. But something Martin Luther's father said that night of his graduation stuck with him. It kind of rolled around in his head and bothered him for years. He, He had asked him the question, can't you serve God as a lawyer? And see, at the time, Martin Luther, he just wrote it off, right, as just unspiritual talk from his unspiritual dad who only cared about money and success and these kind of things. But as Martin Luther later read the Bible, he became more and more convinced that this is actually what the Bible teaches, that his father was actually onto something. And he wrote this in one of his letters. He wrote, it is pure fiction that popes, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need to be intimidated by it. And for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptism. As St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. The revelation says you have made us kings and priests by your blood. These verses point to something which Luther called the priesthood of all believers. That's the biblical teaching that all those who are in Christ are called to be in the ministry. In other words, we're all called as Christians to serve and to act as ministers of the gospel, ministers of grace and truth towards others, no matter what your vocation might be. And so for Martin Luther and the other reformers, this became one of the key biblical doctrines that they championed in their efforts to bring Christianity back to the Bible. And they referred to it as soli deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. And what that meant for them is that everything you do in every area of your life can and should be done to the glory of God alone. And this is especially true when it comes to your work. So whether you're a teacher or a business owner, an engineer, a carpenter, or an artist, you're called by God to do your work unto him and for his glory. It's really a revolutionary teaching. If you really take hold of this teaching, it will change the way not only that you think about work in general, but the way that you approach your work in particular. Our text this morning came from Colossians chapter 3. And this text is about how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, how it affects our lives in practical ways. In this whole section, it begins actually a few verses earlier than where we started. And it begins with these words, as God's chosen ones, 
as God's chosen ones. In other words, since you have been chosen and redeemed by God, here is how that should affect the way that you live practically. He says, whatever you do, work at it in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he specifically addresses work. This idea is reiterated in other places in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And this brings up two very important questions that we need to answer. If all of our lives are to be lived for the glory of God, well, then we need to ask this question, what is the glory of God? Let's define that first. And secondly, what does the glory of God mean for the way that we live our lives? So let's begin. What is the glory of God? The glory of God's a major theme of the Bible, but what exactly is it? Uh, it's actually kind of notoriously hard to define. But if we look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't give us kind of a dictionary definition. It doesn't say the glory of God, noun, and it tells us what it is. Instead, what the Bible does, like it does with many topics, is it gives us stories. It gives us stories to show us what the glory of God is like and what happens to people when they encounter it. One of the best stories about God's glory is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me give you some context. It's the sixth chapter of Isaiah, right? That means there's five chapters that come before it. And what happened in those first five chapters of Isaiah? In the first five chapters, Isaiah is going around and he's pronouncing judgment on different people because they have failed to live up to God's standards. They have sinned. And so Isaiah goes to him and he says, woe to you, woe to you. You are a sinner. You need to repent or God is going to judge you. But then in Isaiah chapter 6, something happens that really changes Isaiah's tone. Here's what happens. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. The two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And, the, the, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah gets this vision of God. And, and here's what he sees about God. Number one, he sees that God is seated on a throne. In other words, he's the ruler. He's sovereign. He is high above him. He says the next thing he sees is that he's adorned with beauty. And thirdly, he sees that God is one who is adorned with praise. There are these angelic beings who never get tired of singing to him and singing about him. And they say that he is holy, he's perfect, he's good, he's true, and that the whole earth is filled with his glory. So this tells us three things about God. Number one, he's powerful. Number two, he's beautiful. And number three, he's holy. And when those three things come together and they spill out, that's what we get glory. That's what glory is. When those three things come together and they spill out, when God's goodness and power and beauty and holiness, when those things go public, that's called glory. And the glory of God is the essence. It's the very essence of what makes him great. It's the very best of who he is. And when that is put on display, when that is made public, when that is revealed and held up for people to see and people to admire, that's called glory. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. And every day and every night, the created world and everything in it acts as a display of God's power and beauty and goodness. 
Isaiah is having this encounter with God's glory. And as he does, something happens to him. He is overcome with a sense of his own inadequacy. He is reminded that God is holy, but he is not. And here he has been going around, spending all his time telling people, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But now what does he say? Look at, he totally changed his tone in verse five. He said, and I said, woe is me, for I am a man who is lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Whereas before, he was so focused on what everybody else was doing wrong. Now, having seen God's glory, Isaiah now turns his attention to himself, and he's filled with an incredible sense of inadequacy. He realizes that he has fallen short, that he deserves to be judged. He deserves to be cut off from this holy God. And here in the presence of the Lord of glory, Isaiah feels deeply and understands perfectly what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 which is this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then something happens. The story doesn't end there. In verse seven, it says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah realizes that he's an inglorious person, that he cannot stand before a glorious God. But God does something incredible. God intervenes on Isaiah's behalf. He sends someone, a messenger, to atone for his sins and to cleanse him so that he can stand in God's presence. This vision was a preview of what Jesus would later come to do. In the person of Jesus Christ, this glorious God essentially descended from his throne and came to us. And he lived among us. He lived among a people of unclean lips and unclean hands. But rather than being defiled by us, he cleansed us of our defilement and atoned for our sins. And here's what's really interesting. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus refers to this story here in Isaiah chapter six. And Jesus says, do you remember that time when Isaiah saw the glory of God? He says, you know what he saw? He saw me. He saw me. And the implication is this, that if you will put your trust in him, if you put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you by dying on the cross and taking the judgment of God in your place and rising from the dead in victory, when you put your trust in him and in that good news, what happened to Isaiah will happen to you. That God will look at you and he will declare, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Part of God's glory, we're told in the book of Exodus, Part of God's glory is that he's not only just, but his glory is that he's merciful, that he forgives, that he saves sinners, that he redeems and he restores. And in Jesus, God has made a way for us inglorious people to come to him and experience his glory. But check out one last thing about this story. After seeing God's glory, after being cleansed by God and having his sins atoned for so that he could stand before God, Look at what happens next in verse eight. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. After getting a glimpse of God's glory, after being cleansed by God, now 
God calls Isaiah to go out into the world and do his work. And let me tell you this, the same pattern is true for you and me as well. That's what we see here in the text that we began with this morning. That's why it starts with these words, as God's chosen ones, now do this. As God's chosen ones, you have a calling. You have a commission from God. In other words, to be chosen by God is both a comfort and a calling. To be chosen by God is both a grace to revel in and it is a destiny to fulfill. Our calling and our commission is this, to enjoy the glory of God and to spread his glory throughout the earth. The Westminster Catechism begins and puts it this way. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what does the glory of God mean for how we live? If the purpose for which we were created is to enjoy and to spread God's glory, what that means is that every area of life can be lived and ought to be lived as an act of worship in his service and for his glory. And that means that worship isn't only what you do at church. Worship is a posture, is a posture of being submitted to God and seeking to honor him and bring glory to him in everything you do in every area of your life. What Martin Luther and the reformers discovered when they read the Bible is that the church had too narrow a view of what worship is, too narrow a view of what service to God is. They said that service to God and worship are the things that you do within the walls of the church. But what the Bible teaches is that we're called to worship God and serve God both in the church and in every area of our lives, in everything that we do. And that means that it's possible to do your work, that 35% of your life, as an act of worship to God. This kind of attitude, by the way, it begins with an understanding of the gospel. With everything that we've talked about so far in this series up until now, that's the found, this is the foundation, this is the end result. If you're saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, and you receive it by faith alone, not by earning it, then there's nothing for you to work for. There's nothing for you to earn. And that means that God gets all the glory, but the other implication of it is that it means that certain kinds of work don't score you more points with God than other kinds of work. You see, for Martin Luther, that was one of the reasons he had given up a career in law and entered the monastery and become a monk because he thought that by doing so, he would score more points with God, that it would give him a better chance of being accepted by God. And maybe if he did this, he could become acceptable. Let me tell you, there are a lot of people who still think this way today. You know, when I lived in Hungary, I was there, you know, for many years, but I remember one time I got this email from someone who I hadn't seen since high school. All I knew about this guy was that our lives had gone in very different directions. He had gotten into drugs and gotten into crime and he had ended up in jail. And the reason that he wrote me was because he, he wanted to ask, how could he become a missionary? I'm not even sure the guy was a Christian, but he wanted to know how can I become a missionary because he said, I want to get right with God. I want to atone for the bad things that I've done in the past. And he thought that mission work was a way that he could atone for his, his sins in the past. The message of the gospel, though, is this. You cannot atone for your sins. You cannot atone for your sins, but the good news is that Jesus has done it for you. And what that means is that your work is not a way for you to earn your way before God. Rather, like Isaiah here in our text, it's a way that we respond to God for all that he has done to us with joyful hearts that want to honor him and do his work and spread his glory throughout the earth. 
The Bible's actually very unique, by the way, in its teaching about work. The ancient Greeks and Romans, for example, they taught that work was a curse. According to Greek mythology, the reason why the gods created humans was so that the humans could do the work for them on the earth while they could lounge around and, and party and enjoy themselves. And they taught that the highest form of life was a life in which you didn't have to work. You could be like the gods. You could get other people to do your work for you so that you could lounge around and just uh, have leisure time all the time. Furthermore, they believed that, okay, if you have to work, not all work has equal dignity and value. They believed that intellectual work had more dignity than manual labor. So if you had to work, it was much more dignified and much more honorable to do white-collar work than to do blue-collar work, but to not work at all was the, was the goal and the end game. Eastern religions, what do they teach about work? Well, Eastern religions teach that the world as we know it doesn't actually exist. It's kind of like the matrix. Like you just think it exists, but it doesn't actually exist. None of this is real. It's all just an illusion. Therefore, work is just a waste of time. It's something you do so that you can have food and shelter while you're trying to convince yourself that you don't actually need food and shelter. But what the Bible says is that the material world does exist and that it does absolutely matter to God. It matters so much that God himself took on a material body and came to this physical world. It teaches that work is inherently good. And the very first image we get of God is a God with dirt under his fingernails, with his hands in the dirt. He's a God who is working, creating the world. And then he looks at everything he says, he looks at everything he created and he says, it's good. It's very good. He pats himself on the back. In the beginning, God worked and he enjoyed it and he did it for the sheer pleasure of working. And when God made human beings, he gave them a job straight away and not as a punishment. He did it because he made us in his image and he is a God who creates and he wanted us to carry on the work which he had begun to manage, organize, cultivate, to design, to build. And all this happened, by the way, before sin came into the world. And then what that means for you and me to understand what the Bible thinks about work is that work was part of paradise. Work was part of paradise. And, and by the way, just kind of a parenthetical thing here, heaven is described in the Bible as the restoration of that original paradise. And so I just wanna say this, if there was work in the original paradise, then I think that means there's gonna be work in heaven as well. You see, many people today, without realizing it, even a lot of Christians, they hold a view of work which is more similar to the Greek and Roman view of work than to the biblical view of work. They consider work a curse, a necessary evil, something to be avoided if you can and not as something inherently good and dignified. But here's the thing, since work is a fundamental part of who God created us to be as human beings, that means it's a basic human need like food, like friendship, like rest, and statistics have shown that people who don't have work tend to be more depressed. They tend to die earlier. People who work until old age tend to live longer. It's an absolute necessity of what it means to be human. To live a fully human life necessitates work. And what that means is that according to the Bible, work is not just something you have to do to make money. And neither is your daily work just something for you to endure so that you can get onto the so-called good stuff. But your work is a calling. It is a summons from God to serve others and to do his work in the world for his glory. 
Luther explained his view of work by pointing to the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Part of that prayer says this, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And Luther said, okay, look at that prayer. Now think about this. Think about how many people and how many jobs are involved in God answering that prayer. First of all, you have a farmer who plants and waters and and who harvests the grain. There's a miller who takes that grain and grinds it up and turns it into flour. There's a person who transports it. There's a person who presses the oil. There's a person who brings the materials to the place where the baker then bakes the bread. And then there's a grocer who sells that bread to you. And all of these people, as they are doing their jobs, they're actually doing the work of God to answer that prayer and to provide you with your daily bread. Luther also pointed to Psalm 147, which says that God is the one who strengthens and protects a city. Luther said, okay, but how does God do that practically? How does God strengthen and protect a city? Is it not through the work of lawmakers and the work of police officers and firefighters and the like? And he said again, Psalm 147, it says that God feeds every living thing. Again, how does God do that? Is it not through the farmer and the baker, the retailer, the website programmer, the truck driver, the banker, and everyone involved in every step of the process? Here's what Luther said. He said, God milks the cows through the vocation of milkmaids. Luther called this the masks of God, the masks of God and the fingers of God. His point was that God accomplishes his work in the world most oftentimes through us and through our work. So whether you're building a house or digging a ditch, whether you're approving a loan or whatever job you're doing, maybe you're caring for children, understand that through you and your work, you can be the mask of God through which God is doing his work in, the, in another person's life here in the world to provide for them and to bless them. Now, on the other hand, we must say this. Not all jobs, not all work serves other people. Not all jobs help people. And not all jobs glorify God. Not all jobs honor God. Some jobs do just the opposite. You can make a lot of money doing a lot of really wrong things that don't honor God. You could sell drugs. You could sell cigarettes to kids. You could sell pornography That might all work and it might make you money and I'm sure it would take a lot of energy on your part. And it might even be legal in some cases. But the question is always this and we must ask ourselves this. Does this honor God and does it benefit other people? You see, there are plenty of corporate jobs even where rather than providing for and helping other people, you're actually exploiting people in order to get ahead to help rich people get even richer. And so this is something what we must consider in regard to our work. Does it honor God and does it help others? And if not, then you probably need to look for another job. But if so, then you can consider your job not just a job but a calling. And you can do it as well as you possibly can. Our text says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as for the Lord and not for men because it is from the Lord that you will receive your reward. Notice that in Colossians chapter 3, This section about how the gospel should shape how we work, it addresses bondservants. Now, a bondservant was different than slavery in the way that it was practiced here in the United States, but it was still the lowest rung on the ladder, right? Like, this is the lowest form 
of a manual labor in that society. And yet, the message is for these people, that these people who are doing manual labor, the lowest rung on the totem pole in that society, they should treat their work as something they do with their whole heart and do it unto the Lord. They should treat their work as God's calling on their life, and they should treat their work as a way that they can worship unto the Lord. And what that tells us is that all work matters to God. All kinds of work matters to God. And it can be a means by which you serve God and do his work in the world. And through your work, God can impact and bless and change other people's lives. A great example of this principle is found in the story of the restoration of Israel after the exile. In your Bible, there are three little books that go together because they tell the story, the same story of a particular period in history, but they tell it from three different angles by focusing on the stories of three different people. Those three different people are Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And here's the background. Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people were taken captive and they were carried away into captivity in Babylon and Persia. But eventually a time came when they were allowed to go back and they were allowed to restore their nation and rebuild Jerusalem. And these three people's stories are told because their stories comprise the setting upon which this happens. And the stories are told because God used each of them in a very important way in this process of restoring the nation. So look at these three people. Is Ezra. Ezra's the first. Ezra was a minister. He was a pastor. He was a man of the Bible. He was a teacher of God's word. And God used Ezra to teach the people his word and to lead them in his ways. But then there's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an urban planner. He's a developer. And God uses his management skills to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to provide security and stability. And then you've got Esther. Esther is a woman with a high-ranking position in the government of Persia. And what does she do? She's fighting against racism and preventing a genocide which would have wiped out the nation. And the key line in the book of Esther is that Esther's cousin Mordecai comes to her and he says to her, who knows, maybe you've been brought here for such a time as this. Maybe God has put you here for such a time as this. With these three people, look at what we have male and female, clergy and lay people. We have people involved in spiritual development, people involved in city planning, and people involved in government. And all of them are being used by God to do the work of God, which he has called them to do for such a time as this. Johann Sebastian Bach, who was a composer in Germany shortly after the time of the Reformation, and at the bottom of every piece of music he composed, he wrote these letters, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Because his goal, his understanding in composing music was to bring glory to God. As an artist, as a musician, he wanted to create pieces which helped other people to get a sense and to see the beauty and the power and the goodness of God, to see his glory. See, because when you really understand the gospel, it changes the way that you view your work. Many of us, our relationship to our work is that we look to it to give us a sense of value and identity. And of course, that's a very precarious thing to do because it can make us slaves to our work or it can destroy us if we experience failure. But if instead of doing that, if we will find our value and our identity in the gospel, 
in the fact that God has loved us and come down to us to rescue us and adopt us into his family, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. If you do that, it frees you up to see your work not as a way of justifying yourself or giving yourself value because you already have that in Christ. Rather, it frees you up to see your work as a God-given opportunity to serve God by serving others. And you can do your work in a way that doesn't promote yourself but brings glory to God. So whatever you do in conclusion, do it to the glory of God. Maybe there are some of you here today and you, you, you hear this and you say, you know what, I do. I need to change my way of thinking about work and approaching my work. Many, some, maybe some of you have been looking at your work as a necessary evil and you haven't been working hard. You haven't been doing it wholeheartedly. You've just been getting by with the minimum. You haven't been doing a good job. And God would want you to see your work in a new perspective so that you can do it wholeheartedly unto him, knowing that it is from him that you will receive your reward. Maybe others of you, these things that we've talked about today, you say, you know what, I think that means that I actually need to look for a new job. Because make, doing my job, it makes me money, but it doesn't help people and it doesn't bring honor to God, just the opposite. But probably for most of us, it's not that you need to change jobs. It's that you need to begin to stop looking at your job for your sense of validation and fulfillment and value and worth or as a way to accrue power or make a name for yourself. You've been looking at your job to give you status in the eyes of others rather than looking at your job as the means by which you can serve God and serve others. Your approach to your work has not been solely Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Your, your work has been solely Meo Gloria, glory to me alone. But wherever you're at with your work today, may you be encouraged to consider how in response to all that God has done for you, you might make God's goodness known in the world through your words and through your deeds. Jesus put it this way. He said, let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are the glory of God, that, Lord, that in you, God's glory has come to us. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. And Lord, thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray for us that we would have this view of work that we read about here. And Lord, that as we do our work, that we would do it in a way that upholds and displays and highlights your goodness, your strength, your beauty, your power, your holiness in a way that says, look at this great God and brings glory to you. Lord, would you work out the details of how that works in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.